We've all had regrets, haven't we? Looking back, wishing we could change the direction we went, decision we made, and the consequences it brought, if only. Sadly, we've all been disappointed by others too. I mean, who hasn't been let down by someone you respected, looked up to, and then wham, they act in a way that seems so out of character, different from what you thought they stood for. Parents, teachers, organizational leaders, Christian leaders, the body count is high. So today, we are in a pivotal, pivotal story that really is a microcosm of the story that gets played out over and over again throughout history and today in our lives all the time. It's about boundaries and limitations, right and wrong, temptation, and in the midst of that, the choices that we make. You don't have to be a Christ follower to be familiar with Genesis 3. A man and a woman, Adam and Eve, a cunning serpent, and a temptation and response that will change the world forever. It happens in the garden that God gave to Adam as his sphere to work for the world's good. But in that ideal setting, temptation, or rather succumbing to temptation, ruined it as Adam and Eve go beyond the limits God gave to them. I want to look at the Genesis 3 story from four frames today. The first is this, God gives us limits. Many times I've heard others characterize Christianity as a restrictive faith. They see it as a bondage to an archaic way of thinking that limits human freedom to a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, you know, from a controlling or, or angry God. But is that a fair and realistic character, caricature of the God represented in the Bible? I'd invite you to look deeper. Oh, there are rules. Almost everybody has heard of the Ten Commandments, and that is Old Testament. And in, and in the New, well, the first followers of Jesus were referred to as people of the way. There is a certain ethic or way that they live. The New Testament teachers were very clear on boundaries, generally and specifically, of how to live in following Jesus. And here's a few examples. Paul. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And Paul again, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
These rules or boundaries can be summarized by what Paul writes to Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We would be wrong to think of these Christian rules of life as boundaries that suck the life from us, but rather make the best life possible. The focus is not so much on what we can and cannot do, so much as the life they facilitate. You can see this example in so many ways in, in day-to-day life. If you've ever tried playing tennis on a paved parking lot with no lines, no net, no rules, it's no fun at all. The restriction of the fence, the painting of the lines, the barrier of the net all make the game come alive and enjoyable. There are often benefits to limits, like I personally have to limit the amount of baked goods I eat in order to be healthy. A Krispy Kreme donut, it's nice once in a while, but to eat a whole dozen at a time, I mean, come on. To make it a staple of your diet, not good, damaging. High-performance cars have tachometers to show you how high the RPMs are getting. You can hear it with your ears and the gauges show you its reality. Push it past the limits too far, too hard, too long, guaranteed damage. Limits in life can be good. Limits, rules, boundaries can keep us from harm. And as Genesis shows us to, to us a creator God who sets a limit on mankind, we are to assume that he has the right to set limits and that he has done so for our good. After all, he did make us. One of the things that Genesis chapter 1 reminds us of is that God is powerful and we owe our existence to him. He speaks and animals and plants and stars come into their existence. The seas are given their boundaries. The sun and moon set in their place. Good. And then he creates us and it's all very good. As you read throughout the Old and New Testaments, a reflection on God's creation causes wonder and right perspective as to like who we are in relationship to our Creator. He is awesome Creator. We are the created. Yes, we are given high status. We are made to be image bearers of God. Nothing else in all the created world is given that privilege. But being image bearers also reminds us that we are not God. There is a limit to our authority. Mankind is an image or icon, a representation of something greater. God has been good. He has blessed mankind. But to live under the blessing of God as his representative is to submit ourselves to God's authority. It is to live under the limits he has given to us. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden. God gives them to, to them every tree in the garden to enjoy. They've been given abundance, but in their abundance, there is a limit. One will suffice. You can eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis gives us no indication that God told Adam why. And my experience has been that this will sometimes be the way it is in following Jesus. God doesn't give you all the details up front. He doesn't tell us everything before asking us to do or not to do something. In our level of faith, we may not yet understand things to our satisfaction, like why God would command the, the sexual ethic that he does. Why, why would he ask me to forgive my offender or prescribe dying to myself so that I can live? It just seems so counterintuitive. Sometimes you have to trust and obey to get the further understanding. What matters is your answer to the question, is God worthy of my trust? A, less, a yes leads you to obey. There's a tree in the middle of the garden. Adam and Eve are not to eat of it. They are to trust God here. And that's what people do in close relationship. Next frame. 
Temptation happens. So, you're trying to follow God and you find yourself tempted to do something beyond the limitations of what God blesses. Something must be wrong with you, right? People who are good and holy, they don't have thoughts like that, right? Like they don't wrestle with sexual immorality, dishonesty, anger, lust, covetousness, idolatry, complaining, gossip, whatever is particular to your struggle. On the contrary, we should expect temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, there is no temptation overtaking you that is not common to man. James says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, or as another version puts it, when you fall into manifold temptations. See, every trial is also attempting to abandon faith, to compromise, to lose hope. Various ways, from without, Satan, the world, but also from within, we are tempted with the desires of our own flesh. The story of temptation in the garden is a microcosm for us. Adam and Eve didn't choose to be tempted. Temptation happens. And we aren't told in Genesis when or how evil appeared in the scene, but it's there and it's here. They were and we are tempted. It is what you do in response to temptation that makes all the difference. And sometimes your choice here will significantly, significantly alter the course of your life. You can spend years building a life of good reputation, years building an organization of influence, and all of it can be quickly destroyed with a bad decision because temptation came and maybe you were off guard, maybe you were tired, maybe you felt entitled, regardless, you chose foolishly. Maybe you are tempted to make a decision like that right now. The elements so often are the same. As we see in this story, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Think about what God has commanded. God commanded liberty to eat every tree but one. The question comes, twisting God's command from every, every but one to none. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Up until now, it's never been mentioned that Adam and Eve were not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like we are prone to do. Maybe she has extrapolated on what God has commanded. And the conversation continues. And like every temptation where we are not decisive, the longer we are in it, the more dangerous it becomes. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. We should notice ultimately the temptation is so much about how we see God and how we see ourselves. You will not surely die. That's a direct confrontation with the truthfulness of God's word. Is what he said true? This attack on God's word is like, version 1.0, but there are other versions of offense, perhaps more subtle. God's word revealed uh, as we understand it, written down as the Bible. I mean, pick your version. It's unreliable, it's out of date, it's irrelevant, full of inconsistencies, full of errors, unclear, or simply unread. The serpent attacks God's word and he attacks God's character. From Genesis 1 and 2, we have seen how God is good and how he has blessed mankind and elevated him and provided for him. But in that place of abundance, the serpent tempts Eve to want more, more than she has been given, 
more than what as humans they were stationed for. See, our desires are so often triggered by concepts of self-improvement or higher status. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Another New Testament writer, John, tells us this in 1 John chapter 2, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh. She saw the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes. It was a delight to the eyes and the pride of life. She said and thought, I, will, I, could, I would be wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Eve was tempted and took the bait, and as so often is the case, what we do influences others for good or bad. Adam, who we have not seen or heard from at all in this conversation, becomes a participant in the same action. Just so we don't miss it, let's do a snapshot summary and see if this doesn't get repeated over and over again, even in our lives. See if it hasn't presented its, itself to you this way. The temptation starts innocently enough, but it catches you or stirs you to be self-focused, discontent, to, to lose your bearings, who you are, whose you are. You are tempted to doubt God, doubt his goodness, doubt that he is for you. It appeals to your desires. <laughs> it looks good. It will be good for you. It's just you know it's against his word. It's not what God wants for you. You shall not eat. And they ate it. They disobeyed God. Maybe you've done the same. Haven't we all? And how did it leave us? How does it find you now? It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Our relationship with God has limits, and we are tempted to go beyond those limits. When we do, this is sin. My third frame today, sin happens. At the core, sin is disobedience. Sin is transgressing God's law. One of the Greek words for it gives the picture of a going over a set boundary, in this case, the limit that God has set. God gave Adam and Eve a simple command. They broke it. Through Jesus and his apostles, God has given us commands to obey. Do we break them? This is not legalism, but like a father who knows what is best for his kids. God's commands lead to life, and so we should want to live them out and teach them to others. And so the Great Commission, Jesus gave his followers, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Obedience to God is a right response. The opposite is sin. Sometimes you hear sin defined as human brokenness and that's very man-centered. More rightly stated, sin is the breaking of God's law, which results in human brokenness. It's the result of choosing our own way over God's way, of choosing to define good and evil instead of God. It has devastating consequences. Adam and Eve's sin did, sin did not deliver to them what they had hoped for. I mean, their eyes were open, yes, but what they saw resulted in a loss of innocence and the, the introduction of shame. And as we'll see next week, incredible loss. If God's ways, 
if God's commands are for our good, then we should expect that to break them will not result in flourishing, but in regret. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It seems that Adam and Eve were regularly in the presence of God and unashamed with each other. Sin results in separation, division, fear, and shame. And this is part of all our human experience because all of sin. None of us are right before God in our own merit, not one. And this is a problem in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other. Josh McDowell said, a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. As you read on in the biblical story from old to new, you see how sin is the central problem to our world. It's not lack of education or resources or lack of equal opportunity. The problem is sin. And the Old Testament emphasizes sin is also the central problem in our relationship with God. The numerous sacrifices for sin that are required for God's people to re-enter into a relationship with him. And the New Testament shows us how great a problem sin is by showing us that it takes God himself in human flesh, Jesus dying on the cross to fix it. So lastly, choose Jesus. You can choose a lot of things in life. Only Jesus will not disappoint. Adam and Eve became ashamed. The promise the Bible makes is that whoever puts their trust in Jesus will never be ashamed. This is not a promise of easy circumstances, but of his faithfulness towards you and his unwavering posture for your good. Maybe you've experienced some horrendous circumstances. Maybe you are in them right now. It is tempting to look at these and think, well, God doesn't care or that he's not there. Doubt, discouragement. Look again to Jesus. Adam and Eve failed their test in the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane, across the valley from Jerusalem, Jesus passed the test. Jesus saw what was coming and prayed to the Father, if possible, take this cup from me. The word cup is Old Testament, representing the wrath of God against sin. It was a test of obedience, and instead of exalting himself and grasping for more as the first Adam had done, would Jesus humble himself? Would he choose to suffer like a sacrificial lamb that would take away the sin of the world because all of its sin would be laid on him? He did. Choose Jesus and go to him with your sin. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, starting verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus walked in our shoes. He was tempted as we are, but overcame. He gets what you have gone through. And when you fail temptation, he is your great high priest that you are to go to with your sin. Adam and Eve sinned and hid. And when, and when confronted, they shifted the blame. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she, 
she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Isn't that what we do? We hide, we run from our responsibility, we shift the blame, but our consciences are heavy. How many people have I talked to who have carried a, a sin, a hidden secret, something they did that they were ashamed of, a weight, a burden, sucking the life out of them? God invites us to bring our sin to Jesus, to find mercy and grace in our time of need. God invites us to bring it to the light so we can be free. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture encourages us not only to confess before God, but before others who are trustworthy. In James chapter five, in, in the realm of asking for healing from the church leaders, it says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Hey, receive the forgiveness Jesus made possible for you by his shed blood on the cross. And when you confess, know that it is forgiven. You don't have to wallow in it, pay, pay a penance, beat yourself up until you feel like you have you know, suffered enough. Don't take away what Jesus has done for you. Forgiven is forgiven. This is the scandal of the cross. Choose Jesus and go to him with your sin. Choose Jesus and go to him with your temptation. When we sin, we have an advocate, we have a go-between for, for us with God, his name is Jesus. But God also wants to work in our lives so that we don't sin. If temptation happens, how do we become those kind of people who don't give in to it? In preparation for the message, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, pray. Well, yes, of course. Uh, no, not just in the moment as I was thinking. Pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray it often. Pray as a mechanism in advance to build a wall of protection around yourself and those you love. Another aspect of prayer that is so helpful is thanksgiving. Much of our temptation, as in Adam and Eve, is to go beyond what we have been given, to, to want more than what God intends for us. And it manifests itself in envy, grumbling, complaining. Speaking to God in thanksgiving is a great antidote. Pray. And prayer is a way we enlist God's help by asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us, especially in those areas where we are weak. Ask him in advance to help you to live a life in conformity with his will. Pray. Pray, not just in the moment. Pray in advance. All of this is moving towards a life where we, we, we give in to sin less, and that's really a lifestyle. When we come to Christ, we, all, we have all kinds of like mindsets of thinking and patterns of behavior that need to be retrained and typically it doesn't all happen in a moment. So we must understand that this is something we will have to develop over time. Be prepared to be intentional about this, plan for this, fight for this. It can take a while. In his book, Educating Tiger, Jacob Lowen, who is called Tiger, tells the story of a medicine man, town drunk in Choco, Panama, who converted to Christianity and was baptized. When Jacob returned to Choco the next summer, he saw the man dead drunk in a town gutter. Lowen asked the church if they intended to discipline the man, expecting them to do so. In Jacob's words, the pastor then gently put his arm on mine and said, Tiger, please stay out of this one. You have never been a slave of hard liquor like some of us have been, 
And we know how hard it is to break a lifelong drinking habit. You have to recognize, Tiger, that it takes time for a conversion to reach the stomach of a drunkard. The church stayed committed to pray and support the man through repeated failures. Uh, a year later, when Lone returned, he says they were privileged to hear the man testify in church that his stomach had finally been converted after many defeats. Hey, don't be completely thrown off by some of your failures. Draw on the help of others and know that God wants to do something far greater in you than just stop you from committing a, a habitual sin. He wants to completely transform and eliminate the sins in our lives that we might pay less attention to, but our significant sins just the same, like pride, unbelief, and self-centeredness. Have a long-term view to live in the gospel, to, to grow in knowing what God has done for you in Christ, understanding who God has made you to be in Christ, you're a new creation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, dead to sin, alive to God. When the children of Israel came to the promised land, they needed to believe that with God's help together, they could take it. God has a promised land of freedom from sin, of liberty and life in Christ. And with his help, as we help one another, we can possess it. Believe and plan to succeed. You don't plan in the middle of a temptation, you plan in advance. Plan to pray, plan to eliminate places and times when and where. You know you will be tempted. Do an audit. You know what they are. Late night activities, certain people. Plan to enlist the help of others, friends, community groups, a group focused on getting free from what you are stuck in. And believe there is a victory, not because of what you can do, but because of what Jesus has already done for you and will do. We just came through November 11th, a, a time when we remember the sacrifice that people made to pay for our freedom in Canada. They gave their life so we could live. And now think of Jesus, who went to the cross, bore our sin, took our shame, and now stands before God to declare us right before him. He died so we could really live free. There's a choice before us. In your sin, in your temptation, choose Jesus. Let me pray. Father, today we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And we ask, Father, that you would be hallowed in our world and in our lives, that your kingdom would come in us, that your will would be done in us on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.